Yep, my name's Joe Joe Telfer, and today we're reading, beginning with the Psalm 146. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, all my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to the God, to my God, as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirits depart, they return to the ground. And on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in it. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. And the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Now we go to the New Testament, Luke chapter 6. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus, he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. One of these days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him. And he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and he stood on a level place and a large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him. 
and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat... Do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if everyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Every sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked be merciful just as your father is merciful good morning my name's stephen i'm uh, one of the ministers here now when it comes to rules and authority what are we australians like you know we hate authority don't we you know, we hate people telling us what to do. We're rebels at heart, right? You know, so think of Ned Kelly, and there's a picture of him up here somewhere. Look at it. Or think of the diggers, you know, who hated the British officers telling them what to do. Look at their faces there. 
We love to stick it to the men, don't we? Or do we? You know, because that impression that we have of ourselves, it, it was challenged during the COVID restrictions. It turns out most Australians actually quite like rules and orders. Most Australians are actually incredibly compliant during COVID. And the social pressure was, was not to rebel, but to conform. You know, some of you had never even heard of a, a QR code before COVID. But then next minute you were scanning at shop doors like millennials on your phone. And it actually, it wasn't just COVID restrictions where Australians suddenly started loving rules and order. We're actually like this in heaps of ways. As you drove here this morning, I'm guessing most of the people you saw on the road were following the road rules. It's not like that in, in so many countries around the world, is it? The truth is, actually, Australians don't necessarily hate rules. What we hate is when people make rules but then don't stick to them themselves. We hate hypocrisy. We don't like the Boris Johnsons of the world who, who make the rules for us little guys and then throw a party and flout the rules for themselves. Now, just before that um, bit of the Bible that Joe read for us just now, uh, just before that, Jesus' disciples are actually going through some grain fields on the Sabbath on the day that God's people were supposed to rest. And as they go, they reach out and, and they grab some of the heads of grain to eat as they go along. And, and that's fine. They're allowed to do that. Um, as long as you didn't use a tool, you know, like a sickle or a, a header, it was all fine. You were allowed to do that. But the Pharisees, they're upset. And the reason they're upset is because they feel that the disciples are breaking the rules. They're breaking the rules about not working on the Sabbath. And Jesus comes into bat for his disciples. He defends them. Which means if, if we're kind of trying to figure out what's going on here, we need to figure out, is this Jesus rebelling against the petty rules of the Pharisees? You know, kind of like a, a Ned Kelly figure. Or is this Jesus flouting his own rules, kind of like a Boris Johnson? Or is this something else altogether? Now, when they challenge Jesus about this, he says to them they should bring to mind a story about David. David was God's anointed king, but, but he was an unrecognized king. And instead of being recognized as king, he was pursued by Saul, who was trying to kill him. And one time as he fled, he did something that seemed to not be permitted by the law. He asked for the bread that was set aside in the holy place that only the priests could eat, he asked for that bread for he and his men. And even though that would seem to contradict the law, somehow it didn't, Jesus is saying. The high priest allowed it. God allowed it. And it wasn't just because the need was so great, therefore the rules didn't matter. It seemed to be more that in, this, in that situation, God was happy for his anointed king, who he'd called his son. He was happy for David, his son, to take what was needed. And Jesus is saying it's, it's the same with him. Like David, he's God's anointed king. He's unrecognized as king. Like David, he's pursued by some hostile people who aren't trying to kill him just yet. 
But that's all about to change. And Jesus is saying that like David, what he, his disciples are doing is somehow within the essence of the law. Now, how can he say that? You know, is he saying here, look, I'm, I'm actually the son of David. And so given my role, this is appropriate. Well, he's actually saying even more than that. So have a look at it. Luke chapter 6, verse 5. Look at where Jesus goes with this story that he tells about David. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus goes from saying there's a precedent for someone not following the law. He goes from saying, I'm an unrecognized king like David. But he says even more, he says he's Lord of the Sabbath. Now there's two things that are very close to the Jewish identity. Very close to their heart when it comes to Jewish identity. One was circumcision and the other was keeping the Sabbath. So this is quite a huge thing to say. The Sabbath, it looked back to God's creation and, and the rest that God had as the goal for his creation. But also the Sabbath looked back to God's salvation of his people from slavery in Egypt. And it looked towards the rest that he would give them in the promised land. And so Jesus says he's the one who is Lord of that. The one who commands that rest. And this, this brings us to our first point. What we see here is that in the kingdom of God, Jesus stands supreme. And this is actually the second time that Jesus has referred to himself as the son of man in Luke's gospel. Do you remember the last one? We saw it um, the other week in, in chapter 5 verse 24. This also was controversial. Jesus said, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And now Jesus is saying he's the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. But it's kind of cryptic what Jesus means by this. I mean, is he saying that, is he just saying that he gets to decide what Sabbath rest looks like? Or is he saying that he brings the rest? that the Sabbath looked towards. And it feels a bit cryptic. And it's deliberately cryptic. I mean, Jesus calling himself the Son of Man is, is cryptic because Son of Man is, is a way that you could just refer to yourself as a human being. But it was also a way of alluding to a part of the Bible that's quite cryptic. Listen to how Son of Man is used in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel wrote, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Listen to what this son of man is like. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. Now, can you see what Jesus is, is saying to the Pharisees there at that grain field? He's saying he's, he's that kind of son of man. He's saying in, in the kingdom of God, he stands like that son of man. He stands supreme. He's saying everything the Sabbath ever pointed to, he's bringing about. 
Last week, uh, we saw that Jesus said, new wine needs new wineskins. And here we see something of the new wine and the, and the new wineskins that he's bringing. The kind of Sabbath that, that he's bringing doesn't fit with the kind of Sabbath that the Pharisees are trying to enforce. Okay, so we see Jesus stands supreme in, in the kingdom of God. But we might wonder, you know, what kind of leader is he going to be? What kind of kingdom is he on about? What's this, this new wine What's it taste like? We get, we get a few tastes of that in this passage that we're looking at today, but we get a small taste in what happens next. The religious leaders, they want to try and trap Jesus by seeing if he'll heal on the Sabbath. You know, they've kind of busted his disciples harvesting on the Sabbath and, and Jesus has allowed it, but they're going after the big fish. They're, they're trying to catch Jesus out himself. And Jesus knows what they're up to. But, but what does he do? What did we hear? Well, he, he might be cryptic, but he's not hypocritical. Because there in, in front of them all on the Sabbath in the synagogue, he heals a man with a crippled arm, knowing full well what they're going to do. They don't like the new wine. And we see they start plotting against him. And at this point, as we kind of see the leader's of Israel start to, to turn against Jesus. We, we see a big moment in Jesus' mission. Have a, have a look at verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. I don't know if you've ever noticed, by the way, um, every time Jesus does anything really big in his mission, he goes off and prays. You should notice it, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, all sorts of places. Before Jesus does something huge, he goes and prays. And look at what this, this big moment is that he's praying about in verse 13. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now, think about what's happening here. Jesus is on a mountain and he raises up 12 people. Can you hear what we're supposed to take away from this? This is taking us back to Israel's beginning. Taking us back to the 12 tw tribes of Israel. Taking us back to Mount Sinai, where God made Israel a kingdom. What Jesus is doing is new, but it's still in line with the past. That's what we're supposed to see and hear here. He's not throwing out everything that's been before. What he's doing is bringing everything that had come before, including the Sabbath, to its goal. So we have Jesus here, supreme in the kingdom of God. And we have 12 people under him that he's, he's raised up to share in his mission. But at this point, we really should be wondering what kind of kingdom Jesus is going to bring. Because this is a pretty strange bunch of leaders that he's just raised up. You know, we've got Peter the sinner and his fisherman friends. We've got Simon the zealot who once thought the kingdom of God would come through knifing Romans in the back. We've got Levi, a, a tax collector who'd given up on the kingdom of God and thrown his lot in with the kingdom of Rome. 
You know, no wonder the, the Pharisees kind of had concerns about what Jesus was doing. And it, it should make us wonder what kind of kingdom does Jesus have in mind? What on earth is going to be the, the character of this kingdom? Now, we've had a, a bit of a, a taste already from what we've seen Jesus and do. But next, we see Jesus give us much more of a taste. And, and this brings us to our next point. In the kingdom of God, Jesus flips the kingdoms of men upside down. And Jesus, we see, he speaks to this, this strange bunch of men that he's just raised up. And he speaks to all of his followers and, and the crowd's kind of listening in. And in a way, you know, a very small way, you could say this is kind of like his manifesto. This is kind of like his manifesto of the kingdom of God. And it's still a bit cryptic because he doesn't fully yet outline completely his plans to the world. But in this teaching, we see what's going to be the character of the kingdom that he's on about. And what we see is that Jesus' kingdom is a complete inversion of the kingdoms of the world. Jesus outlines a kingdom that completely breaks the mold of all other kingdoms. And even more than that, turns the, the aims and the desires of all other human kingdoms on their heads. And today we, we see two things uh, about his kingdom. Next week we'll, we'll see even more things. But today, first we see that the downtrodden are the blessed in this kingdom. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, blessed are you who are poor. Verse 21, he says, Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. This is upside down. Why on earth would, would you consider these people blessed? Well, Jesus says it's because if this is you, he says, for yours is the kingdom of God. For you will be satisfied. You will laugh. Now, we should be thinking, who exactly does Jesus have in mind here? And we, we see this in verse 20. He looks directly at his disciples as he says this. He's looking at the people who were poor enough to need to harvest grain on the edge of a grain field, hungry enough to do it. People we know were sinners and outcasts who've gone from weeping to being wedding guests. And Jesus is not speaking to all the poor of this world. He's speaking directly to his followers. We really see this in, in verse 22 where Jesus fleshes out what he's talking about. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. There's that title again. The poor and, and the hungry, the, the ones... Weeping are the ones who are hated and rejected because of Jesus. Because of Jesus who is supreme. But he says to his followers, it's worth it. It's worth it. So much so that in verse 22, actually he says they should rejoice in that day. And leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. In Jesus' kingdom... His followers, we're told we are like the prophets of the days of old. 
you know, we speak of the kingdom. We speak of it come in Jesus. But what we say is not always going to be accepted. And some people, when they hear what Jesus is saying here, um, when they, they hear this sermon that Jesus is giving, they think that Jesus is saying that in his kingdom we should be focused on eradicating poverty and fighting injustice. You know, that should be the real heart of what we're on about. If you like, every Sunday should be Compassion Sunday. And it's true that God's got a special place in his heart for the poor, the fatherless, the the widow, the oppressed. It's true. God hates injustice. He hates, absolutely hates the arrogance of those who would exploit the vulnerable. His heart is, is with those who've got nowhere else to go but to throw themselves on him. And it's true that Jesus intends to lift up the humble and to bring down the proud. But Jesus' point here is not to elevate the poor and the lowly simply because they're the poor and the lowly as if that's some kind of virtue. His point is that in, the, in his kingdom, the, the humble and lowly who look to him will be lifted up. Some people actually think Luke is, is a gospel that's written to the poor because he seems to have a special interest in the poor. But actually it's probably more like Luke's gospel is a gospel written to the rich. Remember how Luke begins his gospel? He, he dedicates it to someone called Theophilus who is probably a fairly important wealthy individual. And what you see across Luke is Luke wants to say to the rich to people like us be very careful that your money doesn't stop you from seeing your great need for Jesus you know the humble and the lowly they more easily see their need for Jesus but the rich people like us we need to be careful we need to hear Jesus warning listen to verse 24 he says but woe to you who are rich For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now. For you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you will mourn and weep. Woe to you. When everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. If you want to be rich and well fed. Well spoken of. If that's what really has your heart you really want to be comfortable then jesus says to you woe you're not the blessed in his kingdom because if your heart is just set on the same things as every other kingdom in this world if your heart is not set on the one who is supreme in this kingdom then in this upside down kind of kingdom that jesus is on about You'll be overthrown. Jesus says the character of the kingdom of God, of of those who look to the Son of Man and and to his way, is, is not to look to their own money, their own comfort, their own happiness, their own reputation. The ones who are blessed are the ones who look to Jesus. Now this is this is desperately challenging for people like us who are rich. Jesus 
next goes on to tell us that the character of his kingdom reflects the very character of God. Look at verse 27. He says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Makes you, makes you think, what kind of kingdom is Jesus fighting for here? It's a kind of kingdom where we don't fight back. Look at verse 29. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. I wonder what um, Simon the Zealot was thinking at this point. I wonder if he was kind of regretting some of his life choices signing up for this mission. Maybe he's kind of looking at his knife thinking, well, what do I do with this now? Look at what else Jesus says this kingdom is like in, in verse 29. He says, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. I wonder what Levi, the tax collector, was thinking at this point. I wonder if he thought, well, that's not very practical. That's hardly going to turn a profit. You know, this is a very strange kind of kingdom that Jesus speaks of here. A kingdom unlike any in this world, a, a, a complete inversion of the kingdoms of men. And look at what the essence of the, the character of this kingdom is like. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, but love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Why on earth would you do this? Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The character of this kingdom is the character of God. You know, Peter the sinner, Simon the zealot, Levi the tax collector... I'm sure all of them are thinking, what exactly have I got myself into here? And what about you? Do you find this kind of unsettling, what Jesus says here? I do. As I try to think, why, why do I find it unsettling? I think I feel like, oh, it feels a bit unrealistic. You know, I have all these sort of what-if statements that, that run through my mind. You know, I'm thinking, are we being told just to be doormats here it feels very impractical you know what if what happens if i lend my lawnmower to my neighbor and instead of you know him using it to cut his grass he sells it to buy some grass what am i supposed to do then now you, you might be thinking well it's an unlikely scenario your your neighbor's sitting here somewhere to start with Daryl and you know maybe it's a little bit specific but these are kind of the what if statements you know what if I lend and then it just gets misused and, and then what happens when I need to cut the grass next time and maybe we feel like a few more rules and kind of laws here from Jesus would make things clearer but that's not what Jesus gives us what we have here is a taste of the character of the kingdom of God what we don't have is a completely worked out 
list of details with multiple scenarios and examples. This is, this is not rules and laws to be kept and enforced. That's not the point. Jesus calls us into a kingdom that goes beyond just following mere laws. And he calls us into a kingdom to fulfill the very essence of those laws. Because he calls us to be children who are like our father. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, supreme in the kingdom of God, establishes a kingdom whose character is the very inversion of the toxic kingdoms of this world that we see around us. He establishes a people whose way of being is guided and shaped by the very character of God, who confidently hands our fate into his hands so that even in the face of opposition, even in the hands of enemies, even then we will live and rejoice in Jesus' name and love even enemies in his name. In this upside-down kind of kingdom, when we lose in Jesus' name, do you see what happens? We win. And so we can afford to love even enemies, can afford to not retaliate, can afford to show unearthly generosity as sons and daughters who are like our Father. And don't you find that this kingdom is deeply unsettling and yet it's exhilarating? We get to be a part of this. Not because we deserve it, but because Jesus is like a doctor who calls sinners sick people like us to live in this kingdom. And nowhere does Jesus say here that it's going to be easy for us and nowhere does he say that we're going to get it right every time. But what he does say is that it's worth it. He's worth following. So I want to finish. I want to finish by asking, is this what we're like? Because I don't know about you, but I can pretty easily think of examples of, of Christians and churches that don't seem much like this. You know, a lot of Christians and churches can seem really aggressive, not very generous at all, hostile even. But at the same time, I can think of heaps of Christians and heaps of churches that really are like this as well. But our job here and now is not to kind of assess other Christians out there. Because Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. The question is, are we those who are listening? We've heard in this kingdom that the, the downtrodden are actually the blessed. The downtrodden who are living for Jesus. They're the blessed. And the people not living for Jesus, but living for money, comfort, fun and reputation. They are the ones who will miss out. So are we listening? Are we living for Jesus? Are we happy to to suffer for Jesus, to suffer for his name. And is that reflected in the staff room tomorrow? Or in the staff room, does our goal change? Is our goal that everyone would speak well of us? We've also heard that the, the character of, of this kingdom is the very character of God. You know, as individuals, are we extremely generous to those who don't deserve it? To family members, to workmates, to neighbours, to enemies even. 
as a church, are we extremely generous? Are we generous in, in how we speak about those who think differently to us? You know, the day will probably come, not too far off, I imagine, where we won't be allowed to meet in this hall anymore. The day will come when our, our name is, is rejected as evil, like Jesus says, because we follow him and, and we follow Jesus when it comes to human sexuality and his understanding of gender and his understanding of the sanctity of life. The day will come when we won't be allowed to meet here anymore. And on that day, are we going to be those who leave with a blessing or with a curse? Are we going to love those who even say we can't meet here anymore? You know, one of the absolutely beautiful and amazing things about Jesus is that as the Pharisees are kind of gathering to plot against him, what is Jesus doing? He is gathering a people and saying to them, love even people like that. Our Lord is just so completely different to every other human leader. The kingdom he makes is just completely different to every other human kingdom. Is that showing in our lives? Is it showing in your life? Is the extreme kind of generosity of your father shining out in your life? Let me pray for us. Father, um, we stand in awe of, of Jesus, our Lord, a leader unlike any other. We stand humbled before you because we see that our character is just so different to yours. The kind of mercy and generosity that, that you have shown enemies, shown us, shown all people is just extraordinary. And Lord, help us to see the wonder and the privilege that you have called us to be a part of your kingdom, a part of an amazing work that you are doing. Lord, we pray that you would help us now to, to begin to live this out even as we long for the day when Jesus returns and completely restores all things. Lord, in our hearts, help us to be those who long for Jesus and not long for the riches of this world. And in our hearts, help us to be those who show the same kind of extreme generosity even to enemies that you have shown. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.